This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. For all the talk about culture wars, the biggest battle in Washington usually comes down to money. In education, the big spenders have had their way for the past few years. When COVID arrived, both political parties thought spending more money was the way to solve almost every problem. Gone was the concern about deficits. Gone was the worry about inflationary pressures. Spending was needed. And in education, more money was received from the federal government by our school system than ever before in the nation's history. Well, now inflation has arrived and the people who are skeptical have more influence in Washington. The Republicans have captured the House of Representatives and they're not going to continue these high levels of expenditure. So schools are now facing a cliff that the federal government created for them. They first had a lot of money. Now they're not going to have so much. But does money really make any difference for student achievement? Years ago, Jonathan Kozel published a best-selling book entitled Savage Inequalities, which was taught to nearly every student who was a major in education. It, this book, Savage Inequalities, uh, said that much more money was spent on the education of rich kids and poor kids. But just this past month, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute has released a new study entitled Think Again. Is education funding in America still unequal? The author is Fordham's National Research Director. I'm pleased to have Adam Tyner with me on the Education Exchange. Adam, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks so much for having me on, Professor Peterson. Well, you say there's no fiscal inequality between rich and poor kids in our public schools today. So how did you do that? I'm not interested in the, all the details, but what's, what, what are the specific findings that you're you're getting well it's one of the first things that i think i ever learned about education policy maybe i was in high school and i learned that the if you were in a more affluent area the property was more valuable and because schools were largely funded based on property taxes then the schools in those areas had a lot more resources. And if you were in a poor area where there wasn't as much property to tax and there was a lot uh, fewer resources, that meant that the schools would get a lot less in terms of resources. And that was exactly what Jonathan Kozel was documenting and all that great journalism that he did back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was true back then, but we've had a bunch of things that have happened since then. Back in that era, it, uh, uh, some parents and other activists started to challenge the uh, huge inequalities that were happening uh, in their communities. Uh, John Serrano, a Mexican-American parent in eastern Los Angeles County, was uh, one of the first to uh, help launch one of these um, court cases that ended up leading to more equitable funding uh, in the state of California. It was a California Supreme Court case. And in a bunch of states, that's happened. I think there's been 26 or 27 of those uh, over the years that had court cases uh, in different states, I yeah, should the, say. The number keeps going up. So, you know, I yeah. say it's it's closer to it's closer to 40. It, it, you know, it's amazing how many of these cases have uh, have arrived on the scene. So, yeah, you're so, absolutely right. 
Yeah, there's there's more cases actually than states. Yeah, I, I meant maybe 26 states have had a court case like that or multiple court cases like that. Then you've had legislative action. A lot of states didn't actually want to have such savage inequalities once they realized that there was something they could do about it. There's been legislative action. And of course, we've also seen uh, more federal funding over time and more funding in general over time. Uh, my brief looks at the pre-COVID era, so we're not talking about these gigantic infusions of funds that we've seen over the last few years. We're talking about before that, uh, We even before that, um, we a combination of all of those factors led us to closing those gaps. When you look within states, the schools that have more affluent students do not spend more money than the schools that serve less affluent students. That's pretty much true across the board. It's more likely that there's a little bit of progressive funding. That's more money going to the schools serving more uh, lower income students. And uh, there's only a, a couple states. Most of them are statistically insignificant from, you know, statistically indistinguishable from zero in terms of uh, the level of regressivity. But there are a couple of states like New Hampshire where they still have slightly regressive uh, funding when you look at the school level. But we didn't have this data. Uh, we haven't had it for very long. Uh, school level data has only been available uh, regarding uh, school funding, only been available for a few years. The folks at the Georgetown Edunomics Lab have done yeoman's work putting all of this you know, data from all over the country, sometimes not always formatted the same way, uh, not always uh, comparable and making it comparable so that these types of analyses could be done. And some of the as those analyses have come out, uh, my research brief summarizes that, looks at both you know, district inequality and also school level inequality, which is something that we have only been able to examine for a couple of years now, and finds that the, those gaps have been closed. When did this begin? And, and, well, you've been saying it's been happening over a long period of time, but when did parity arrive? When is this just yesterday after COVID or has this been around for 10 years? When did we close the gap? I'm not sure. At the district level, it seems like the gap has been closed for a couple of decades. So, um, yeah, I would point out that we're mostly talking about just binary classifications of like richer versus poorer districts. So there's probably some distributional stuff uh, where you might see, you know, at the very top or the very bottom, uh, you may see some outliers or something. But um, I think that we've had studies going back several years that point back to the late 1990s is, you know, when we've closed most of the district gaps. Uh, there's one paper by Julian LaFortune and his co-authors that looks nationally and looks at the top and bottom uh, quintile, so the 20% richest districts and the 20% poorest districts looking within states, uh, it finds uh, that those gaps by district were closed in the mid-2000s, and they've remained closed. And of course, funding is more progressive at the moment than ever. Of course, that fiscal cliff you were alluding to may reverse some of that. But um, I think that at the district level, it's probably been a couple decades that it's been closed. But I think people persisted in thinking that you know, maybe at the school level, there was a big difference there that at the district level, we closed it, but the school level, because they didn't at the school level that persisted because we didn't actually have the data to disprove that. And it really does serve a lot of interest to kind of think that we still have these big gaps. And this is this big social justice issue. 
Um, now, there may be still big social justice issues with regard to school funding, and maybe you know because some students may need a lot more or may need special programs. Uh, we can talk about that, but the uh, inequality that existed for so long and that Jonathan Kozel and many others documented, that seems to have been gone for a while, although it, it's possible we don't have long-term school-level funding so, uh, data, so I don't think we can know uh, for sure how long that's been closed. Well, how, how important was the federal compensatory education program? You know, it was this very argument that led Lyndon Johnson to uh, uh, recommend the passage of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. That's 1965. That's a, a long time ago. And uh, part of it was to address the gap in resources being devoted to disadvantaged kids. It was a it was an anti-poverty program. That's the justification for it. And so the monies in that program, although, you know, as in the case in any federal program, they get the monies get spread around, but basically the monies have been directed at school districts with predominantly disadvantaged kids. So how big a role has the federal dollar played in all of this? Well, as you know, Professor Peterson, federal funding is not a huge slice of the overall school funding pie. It's around 10%. And that has maintained, uh, that's been about 10% for the last 30 years or so. Um, I look at data from the 80s. Uh, until uh, right before COVID, just to visualize overall school spending, because it all has gone up uh, considerably in inflation adjusted dollars. Uh, total spending uh, has gone from around $9,000 to about $17,000 in constant uh, inflation adjusted dollars overall. And federal spending has gone from a little under $1,000 to a, about $1,800 uh, in, in 2019. So um, it helps. And it definitely because uh, the the money that is federal, the, the federal money is so progressively allocated. It's almost Title I is the biggest line item in the uh, federal education budget. And it is mostly just to target schools that serve lots of students coming from economic disadvantage. So uh, it certainly helps to have 10% of your money being very progressively allocated to help close those gaps. But if states weren't doing stuff and if other reforms hadn't happened, uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten to parity. Well, is this money mostly in the form of special ed programs? Because we know that the special ed dollars have gone up a lot over the last uh, 50 years or so. And we know that special ed programs uh, disproportionately are concentrated on the disadvantaged, though well, there's a plenty of, um, you know, more kids from more advantaged families who are disabled as well. So it's not exclusively so, but, but disproportionately special ed money is going in that direction. Is that the, a major driver of it, do you think? If you took special ed out, would this sort of inequality uh, reappear? I don't think so. And the reason is that the uh, special ed funding is is lightly correlated with uh, your, the overall level of economic disadvantage, but not super strongly correlated with it. So I have a figure in the brief where I look at the percentage of special ed students by the level of economic uh, disadvantage of the school by the quintile. And in the in the most affluent quintile, 
it is uh, it's twelve percent of students who are identified as special education as, as needing special education, and in the poorest quintile, it's fourteen point nine percent. So it's higher. And it is part of why those schools are getting a little more money, but I wouldn't uh, see. I, I wouldn't believe that that was uh, the main driver of it because it is. Uh, it's not as if in high poverty schools most of the kids are special ed students or something like that. And on the other hand, uh, English learners is another. Uh, uh, the the number of English learners you have may allow more allocation in some districts and for district and state funding. And that is more correlated with uh, the poverty of the of the school. And so that would help equalize it. But that raises another question, Professor Peterson, which is that if we're very slightly progressive overall in the way that we allocate funding and we're close to parity, but maybe just very slightly progressive. But the highest poverty schools have a lot more uh, students who are English learners and they may need extra resources and some more students who are identified as special education and they need more resources then just being at parity or slightly better than parity is probably not good enough to really offer equality of opportunity for all of those students. Well, some people have tried to quantify that saying that in order to get equality, I don't know how they do it, but uh, in order to get equality of opportunity, you've got to spend about I don't know, $20,000 more on poor kids than we're currently spending on there, or some number in that range. Uh, did you take a look at that? And uh, and uh, you agree with that assessment? Well, there's some people who've argued for more school funding who have tried to kind of obscure the fact that we've reached equality and have cut the data in kind of creative ways to make it seem like the savage inequalities never went away. But there's some other folks who've acknowledged the progress that we've made and are now kind of moving in a different direction in terms of how to best fund schools. And one of those approaches is the so-called adequacy approach. I think that the leading exponent of this idea is Bruce Baker, a professor at the University of Miami. And the idea behind the adequacy approach is essentially it's based on the delivery model of education, as if education is the thing that makes students flourish. And I should say schools, formal education, schools and what happens in schools is the thing that does it. And so we need to just keep pouring money into schools until we get the outcomes that we want. And sometimes it's not really about closing gaps entirely which is a little unsatisfying because even if we were to accomplish it, we wouldn't have closed the gaps. But maybe according to some of those figures, if we pour enough money into schools, we can get almost all the students to average will be like Lake Wobegon or something. Everybody would be about average or above average or something. And I find that approach quite unsatisfying uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because of that idea that it's sort of like educational delivery and we just need more resources. And as much as I believe that resources do matter, I think that the evidence on that's very clear that money does matter. And these savage inequalities we really did have for a long time are a historical injustice. Uh, and and more money may be really necessary for some students to, to flourish. I, I don't think that um, it's the only mechanism, like adding more money is the only mechanism. And I, I think that it's kind of unsatisfying to uh, suggest that we would just keep putting money into the schools 
until we get an outcome when there's a lot of other factors that influence student outcomes and influence the life chances of young people. And if you just keep pouring money in, eventually you're going to crowd out other things that you could be doing, whether it's child tax credits or food supports or better policing or, or all kinds of other things that could help communities. At some point, you're going to get diminishing returns in the schools. And it would be better to put your money into something else that supports families and young people. And of course, I've gotten some ridicule for you pointing out that trade-offs exist on Twitter and elsewhere from some of these folks who say, well, no, we're for all of that stuff. We want to increase money for schools and we want money for uh, families and we want money for food supports and we want, um, you know, the the kitchen sink uh, in terms of, of funding those communities. And uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's fine, but the money has to come from somewhere. So I think we have to deal realistically with the fact that there's going to be diminishing returns in the effect of additional dollars in schools at some point. And we should think about that in terms of trade-offs rather than thinking that we just continue pouring money into schools until we get the outcomes we desire. Well, we almost did that in the case of the COVID uh, era, where we we basically sort of said, okay, we're going to spend more money on everything. And we increase uh, spending in just about all those different domains that you talked about there. And we did. going into education, we're massively... Uh, in the increases is not is not modest in, in New York State. It's the last figure I saw. They were spending thirty thousand dollars per person in is per student in the school. Thirty thousand. Now in the past we've been talking about you know it's ten thousand dollars per person enough or fifteen thousand. I mean this is thirty thousand. Now test scores have been going down in the last few years. So. I mean, certainly people can say, well, you know, this is an unusual moment in time. You can't ignore that. But certainly was one thing you, you, you can say is the dollars didn't prevent the test scores from dropping. Mm-mm. Massive increase in, in test score in, in dollars didn't prevent test scores from, from going in the wrong direction. So that's right. And I, the. You know, some of that money's not spent still, so we don't even know uh, how how uh, there's a lot of uh, work to do in the weeds to figure out exactly what money's left over and where the money went and and all of that. Because you're right, it it certainly uh, from an ROI perspective doesn't look very good. Of course, we don't have the counterfactual where we you know didn't spend a lot more money on schools and know how much worse it could have been. I think in more normal times, though. Uh, I think the research has become pretty clear that having school funding and and school resource um, equality is something that really does benefit students who are coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, I don't think that the research on that is really very uh, hard to interpret anymore. I think that we have a bunch of really strong studies showing that. And so I think it makes the historical argument a little clearer, like we should have done this earlier. And uh, but it also it, it doesn't it's not real satisfying for the future because we don't know where we are in that you know, on on those diminishing returns or how much more we need to spend in order to get where we want. One other point about the adequacy argument that leaves me um, kind of wanting a little more is that there's places that spend as much as those um, numbers suggest they need to spend in order to get to adequacy. You mentioned New York, and I think New York City is one of those places where they spend as much as is supposedly is adequate to get everyone to average, and they still don't meet those benchmarks. 
So um, you're taking one side in this debate between Kirbo Jackson and Eric Hanyashek. And Eric Hanyashek has just come out with a new paper on this very topic as to spending, uh, how, much, how much of a difference does it make? And he's looked at the same studies that you just referred to by what I'll call the, the Jackson Group. The Jackson Group came up with a new method for estimating the effects of expenditures. And you're quite correct, correct in saying that they found uh, benefits. But now Hanyashek and his colleague come back and they say, yeah, but the effects are estimating very enormously from one study to the next. It's not like they all come up with, oh, yeah, the same number. They come up with wildly different numbers, which suggests that how you spend the money is much more important than whether you spend more money. So most of the conversation is whether you spend more money, not how you spend the money. And they say the, the variability and the effects from these very sophisticated studies that uh, you've been mentioning there um, don't really come to grips with uh, the how question. Um, so how should we spend the money? Well, I just want to take a little issue with your characterization of me taking one side in that debate because I have enormous respect for Kirbo Jackson and his colleagues who have done a bunch of really fantastic work putting together meta-analyses of all of these individual studies and putting them on different scales. I think they did just incredible work on that. I think it really shifted uh, the way that we think about school funding and school funding equity. And I think it's really innovative and great work. I also have a ton of respect for Eric Hanyashek, who is a huge innovator and in value-added modeling. And, and some of the stuff that he's done on finance, too, has been has been really uh, helpful. And his new paper that you pointed out uh, evaluates a lot of the same data that Kirbo Jackson and his uh, colleagues evaluated. And I understand that their takeaway, uh, they focus on the variability that you brought up, um, that you don't find the same point estimate across all of these uh, studies. And that is true. Um, but I also think that it's an exceedingly high bar to expect that when you inject funding into a bunch of different places, uh, it kind of you know semi-randomly, as we as as those studies uh, are trying to evaluate, uh, that you would come up with a the same point estimate or even in the same range of point estimates when the money is getting spent on different things and uh, in different contexts and um, and so I think that a much more um, conventional bar in social science would be to say, if you want to know if there's an effect of X on Y, you look to, and you've got a meta-analysis, you've got a bunch of studies, you look to see if, you know, you're seeing a lot of negative effects and equal number of negative effects as positive effects. Are you seeing tons of statistically insignificant effects? Those would be the kinds of things that would draw me to think there's not really an effect. And uh, both uh, Eric Hanyashek's recent paper with his colleague and Kirbo Jackson's work found uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, either positive or no effect. And, and uh, you know, one addition that Kirbo Jackson and one of his other colleagues did, they looked at this by student group and were able to see that when you look by student group, you even see larger effects for uh, students coming from disadvantage. And so one great contribution of uh, Professor Hanyshek's uh, new paper is that he talks about some of the specific inputs that you could be using, like class sizes and having more experienced teachers, and uh, finds that you know some of those inputs don't seem to have a very large effect. 
uh, but other inputs do. And so, as you said, uh, it, it's about how you spend the money is an important question. But I, I do think both are important questions. I think funding equity is an important question and how you spend the money is a separate and very important question. And I think that that new paper that he has does, you know, helps push us along to say, hey, how are we spending this money? Do we want to reduce class sizes, which is very expensive, or do we want to, uh, you know, take another approach that is is uh, with that money that may get us more bang for the buck and really get better ROI, more academic return on our investment. I, in in my new brief, t- I talk about uh, the fact that we continue to see, even if we have funding equality, we continue to see resource inequality in some cases. Now, that sounds kind of weird, like funding equality, resource inequality. But it, what I mean by that is when you're talking about the classroom resources, the actual things that are around the student, uh, it's not dollars that help them get educated. It's having a high quality teacher, having a, a classroom that's orderly and, and clean and having a building that's not falling down and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there we continue to see some inequalities. So I th- suggest that instead of you know trying to maybe calculate how we would pour enough money into schools to get the outcome we want, as if schools are kind of like the only mechanism that uh, if we want to focus on resources, we should maybe focus more on those classroom resources inequalities and help solve teacher the fact that you know a lot of students don't have access to an experienced, high quality teacher. If we can you know create some mechanisms for getting more experienced, high quality teachers in uh, you know serving those schools, that would help to close that gap, which I think has a more common sense rationale providing that you know equality of opportunity. Uh, than the kind of wonky stuff that they're doing in the in the ad- adequacy camp. Well, maybe this this is, uh, is uh, addressing uh, the question that I that came to my mind here when I looked at your figure two, which showed that spending uh, at all schools on a per pupil basis uh, increased uh, from 1990 down to 2015 or some thereabouts. Yes, that's a 30-year period, 25-year period. Um, so the spending just in general, uh, you know, nearly doubles. It doesn't quite double. but And this is in constant dollars. This year, Correct. Year, quite fascinating. So if spending does make a difference, then why hasn't the doubling of the, re- of the dollars out there produce some kind of a comparable shift in student performance? I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that student performance has gone up some. So you, it, I don't know what the bar is, but would it be that for you know a 10% increase in funding, we should expect a 10% uh, percentage point rise in the pass rate or something uh, you know, on a test? I, I think that the ROI is always probably going to be a little bit lower than that. And we have seen uh, performance go up now, not maybe in the pandemic era, but I'm looking at the pre-pandemic era. I think NAEP scores are up modestly. Uh, well, they over were that up period. in math. I mean, I, I quite agree with you in mathematics, uh, but they were going up before that. They were also going up during the period when savage inequalities uh, existed. And uh, the narrowing of the gap between the rich and the poor and test score performance is going up during the savage inequality period. And and the contemporary period, there was no real change in the in the direction of things, but it was in math mainly. The reading change has been very modest. 
It's been modest, but I guess my point is just that there is a correlation. It's not like the correlation is zero. It's just not as strong as we might like it to be over that period. Well, it's five I, times I as think, great. But it's not. It's not small. It's five times as large in mathematics I, as it is in reading. But I don't. I actually don't in think mathematics is five times greater than the amount in reading over a fifty-year period. So that it's not like you can say yes, it's correlated. Yes, it's both going in the positive direction, but one is five times greater. And you know, I'd rather have. You know, if I put my money in the market and I got a five times return from one thing and, you know, compared to another, I know which way I want to put my money. So you can't just sort of say, okay, test scores have gone up, money's gone up, therefore money is explaining why the test scores went up. I, I totally agree. I actually think that's a terrible way to evaluate it. I just think that's an intuitive way to evaluate it. So it's uh, that's the way most people would kind of look at these graphs. They'd say, oh, the money went up and the test scores didn't go up as much. They went up, you know, pretty very modestly. And of course, math is, you know, a, a, a place where you probably learn it more in school than in, you know, for reading, you're getting a lot of vocabulary and stuff outside the classroom is, is making a difference. So I think that school is always going to have a bigger impact on math scores than on reading, but um, that's not really a good way to evaluate whether spending uh, mattered anyway. And that's exactly why Eric Hanishak and Kirbo Jackson have done these incredible studies to look at places where money went up kind of, you know, quasi randomly, you know, because like a court, you know, case happened and then the there was a spike in funding for some students or for all students. And then they're able to evaluate that in a context that we would call a more, you know, causally valid context. And okay, those so studies are much more consistent than the right. story that we were talking about. Yeah, I see your point. So, but let me ask you about teachers, because it, I think most people out there agree that the teacher is the most valuable resource in the classroom. If schools make a difference, it must be because teachers make a difference. And there's a, a lot of variation in the quality of teachers. That's something that people pretty much agree upon. I don't think that's very controversial. Some teachers are extraordinary. We learn a lot from them. We can all identify somebody in our life who had a huge impact on, on our learning. And we know that there are other teachers that are awful, that you probably, you know, came out of that experience learning less, if you can believe it, than when you went into it, but at least you didn't learn much more. So we know that there's huge variation in the quality of the teaching force. And that's been documented by many studies out there. So then the question comes up, well, if that's the case, then why shouldn't we be really concentrating on making sure that the disadvantaged students get just as good teachers? And all the money that's being put into the system doesn't really address that problem clearly. I mean, it may address it indirectly. It's not clear that it does, but it certainly doesn't address the problem clearly because the more experienced teacher can find the job that they want. And the first incoming teacher who we know is the weaker teacher usually gets saddled with teaching students who are the most challenging to teach. And that has never changed. In the savage inequalities era or the contemporary period, that has remained pretty much the same thing. One thing that I learned by reading the work of Kenneth Shores, uh, who's a professor at the University of Delaware and his colleagues who have done some of the really good work uh, on the school level data. I think they have the most important paper on that topic. They also look at some of the resource uh, gaps. And one thing that they find is that um, for lower income students, they're more likely to have a smaller class size. 
And what that means is that the overall spending on teaching actually costs more in a lot of higher poverty schools. And overall, that's the case, right? They, we spend a little more in the higher poverty schools than in the lower poverty schools. Now, that's what the point of my brief is. Uh, it's it's about at parity, but it's it's a sli- slightly progressive. And part of that is being driven by what people think, well, how's that possible? Because you know you have these inexperienced teachers and a lot of teachers leave high poverty schools after a year or two. And so how's that possible? But the reason is because the class sizes are smaller. And so you're 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 spending uh, more money. Uh, but you're getting, you're, you're paying your teachers less and you're not getting as high quality teachers. So I think that addressing that, and I, you know, I've seen some, there's been some localities that have tried to tackle this. Washington DC uh, has tried, a lot of places have tried. And I think we need to keep working on that because uh, as you said, it's a really important resource input. It's something we haven't equalized. And of course, then we have to address, you know, how how is class size going to play into that as well? Because as Hanushek's study, recent study shows, um, that's not one that has a consistently powerful impact on student learning. So um, if, if money is so valuable and if we can solve so many of the problems by making sure that money goes to where it's most needed, why not just give the money to the families and let the parents use it to educate their children. We've got a new program out there called Education Savings Accounts that's sort of designed that way. Is this something you would advocate? Well, it's not what I talk about in the brief. The brief is really talking about traditional public schools and charter schools and looking at uh, just resource uh, e- equality, and so uh, readers can or listener, your listeners can can check out that brief uh, on our website FordhamInstitute.org. But if you go to FordhamInstitute.org, you'll see that we have a lot of commentary and research around school choice issues as well, because. Um, most of us at the Fordham Institute believe that uh, choice can be a powerful driver of change and empowering families can uh, have the kind of uh, powerful systemic effects uh, that, that, you know, exactly the ones that you're talking about. Um, so uh, whether that's in the form of, you know, vouchers or, or you know, more regulated approaches like charter schools, I think there's different flavors of that. Uh, I tend to want to see a lot of regulation and I just giving all the money to the parents uh, I think could backfire in some cases. We've you know, seen it with uh, for-profit colleges. I mean, I remember seeing a, a study out of, or, or at least maybe it was a, not an academic study. It may have been in the news, but there was a for-profit college that was in Florida that was like paying strippers to go around and enroll people in Pell Grants. And it blew up. It was a huge scandal. And uh, you might see maybe not that exact example, but you might see a lot of stuff going on if there's not much regulation of how that money ends up getting spent. You might see some headlines there and you might see some poor use of that public money. So I want to see regulation, but how that all plays out with these new uh, vouchers and education savings accounts, I'll be uh, interested to see. Well, thank you, uh, Adam. You really made a major contribution with this study. You've uh, shown that uh, the debate over inequality of financial resources across schools is a debate about the past, not about the present, and probably not about the future. And uh, that is really a, a major contribution. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks so much for having me and for the kind words, Professor Peterson. It was a pleasure. 
All right. Uh, I've been speaking with Adam Tyner, the National Research Director for the Fordham Institute, which has just released a new report entitled, Think Again, Is Education Funding in America Still Unequal? I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.